I'm going to talk today about my greatest triumphs and my greatest shames. Whenever I share personal information about myself, people always write about how they like it. I think it's less important for me to talk about myself than to share about my learning the joys of stewardship and recognizing that flying anytime you want or having blueberries 12 months a year doesn't really improve your life. But it seems that it helps people more to understand where I'm coming from and maybe hold a bit, hold a bit off on saying, oh, Josh, you're so privileged to be able to not fly or you're so privileged to be able to buy food that isn't packaged. I'll share some of these stories. I'm not sure how long this is going to come out. I've written down a few of my greatest triumphs and greatest shames. A couple of stories feel like they're going to be long. I'm not sure. I hope you like them. So the first one is I'm going to talk about making a team that Ultimate Frisbee, for those who don't know, was one of the great experiences of my life. I played for a good 20 years. Teams that I were on made it to nationals. I made it to nationals in college as a club team. And there was a team that I played on that had the best players that I'd ever, ever played with. And I'm going to tell the story about that. And ultimately, I used to play, I don't know, five days a week, maybe more sometimes. And I did not grow up athletic or particularly competitive. But ultimate was that for me. And for, for people who don't know the sport, go online and look up some videos. It's an incredible sport. I think it's incredibly beautiful. It's, but more to the point here, it's really physically demanding when you get up to, especially when you get up to the higher levels. The community is very supportive. Okay, so picture now, I've graduated college. I'm in grad school. I think that's, I was in grad school. I play summer league, which is just for fun. And the fall league is when the club teams, there's nationals at the end of that season. So at the end of summer, you want to get on a good team to play for in the fall. I didn't have a team to play with. A friend of mine said, there's a team that he was practicing with. I didn't know if there's anything about that quality of the team. But the guy said, come out and play. It's going to be really fun. This guy, Matty J, is organizing it. So Matty J, if you don't know, he played on the New York team that in the 80s dominated the sport. Oh, by the way, this is in the 90s, I think, at this point. No, maybe it was in the early 2000s. In any case, Matty J played on this team that just absolutely dominated the game and turned it from a pretty fun game into a very, very competitive game. They practiced all the time. So it brings me up to the field. You know, I live in New York City at the time. I had to get a ride up to Westchester. They're playing on some uh, field up there. And I get there and I start cleaning up. That is to say, putting on my uniform, or not uniform, but stuff to play in and cleats. Matty J comes over and says, Josh, he kind of knew me. We kind of knew each other from Summer League, but didn't know him that well. And he said, I'm not sure if you know this, Josh, but uh, this team is set. We have already had our last cuts and the team is the team. And I'm sorry that you came out here for no reason, but you can't make the team. I'm feeling like, ah, darn. But he says, well, as long as you're here, you might as well just play. But, you know, that's it. So I finished cleaning up and I played. At the end of the, and we just ran around and played and I played, you know, had, had the best time I could. At the end of the practice, when I'm taking my cleats back off again, he comes up and says, why don't you come out again next week? And I ultimately made the team. And that team, we lost by two points in the game to go to nationals. It was really an incredible team to play on. I didn't realize that I was trying out. A big lesson was just have the most fun you can, play with all your heart, and you never know what will happen. That was one of my greatest triumphs. Another one was academic. For those who don't know, most people know I have a PhD in physics. Many people don't know that I avoided taking science classes for most of college because I'd been picked on in high school. You know, I wasn't like the biggest nerd around, but I wasn't particularly socially skilled. I'd be made fun of and people could pick up that I was good at math and science. I don't know if I really liked it that much, 
in college, in my first couple of years, I took a couple physics classes. I don't think I took a math class or any other science classes. And then I took a year off from college. After my sophomore year, I took a year off, didn't go to school that year, lived in France, in Paris. And when I came back, I found a new, before that, I took whatever classes I took, lots of liberal arts stuff. When I came back, originally I was going to, there's a program where you could get a degree, a certificate to teach high school without getting a full master's degree. And I thought, oh, I'm going to teach math and science in high school. Certainly in the United States, I probably would never have a problem getting a job because we don't have, I think, particularly many math and science teachers. So I had to take classes in education, which meant sociology and psychology, things like that. And I had to take classes in the subject I wanted to teach, meaning physics and math. I loved all the classes that I took, but the physics and math ones were much more challenging. And then for the the reward that I felt on doing well on the tests and getting the subject, getting understanding the material, the reward was much greater. So second semester junior year, I decided to major in physics. I said, I'm still going to teach, but I'll teach at a college level or university level. Most people who major in physics know from high school that they're going to major in it, and they start taking the advanced physics and math classes from freshman year. I'm in my second semester junior year taking classes with freshmen who are advanced relative to me because I've had all these years to forget everything. I felt like I was clawing back the entire time, always catching up. I felt like I was in a bucking bronco, like in a rodeo, that if I ever let go for a second, I would never, get, never be able to get back on again. I took like six or seven classes a semester and did stuff over the summer. So it was really difficult. But then I got into Penn for graduate school and I started at Penn after graduation. At Penn, it started all over again because I'd caught up by graduation in the undergrad level. But then at grad school level, there are all these students from other countries, particularly Russia and China, who had taken, like where I'd taken 20 math and science classes, they had taken sometimes 40 and there's no substitute for experience. So they knew this stuff way better than I did. The classes were not designed for the last person in class, the person who knew least, which was me. And I was back to catching up again from scratch. I got my lowest grades ever. And the head of the department at Penn said to me, maybe you should start taking undergrad classes again, which undermined my confidence. So at the end of the first year of graduate school at Penn, you have to take the qualifying exam. The qualifying exam is... I forget the details, but it was like six hours a day, three days, and they can ask you about anything. And this is, physics is a pretty tough subject, if you didn't know. And to be able to ask about anything means that for three days, you have to know everything up to a certain level, undergrad and a little bit more. As it happens, there is a group that votes because the qual is only given, every time they give it, the questions are new, never used before and never used again. So it's, there's a lot of there's no objective measure of whether someone passes or not. So a group of professors grade the results and then vote on whether each student should pass or fail. As it happens that year, there was an even number of people voting and there was a tie on mine. I heard this later and they didn't know what to do. So they went around and figure out, tried to figure out what to do. And one professor said, oh, I should mention at Penn, if you don't pass the quals, for the fall semester, there's a class which is how to take qualifying exams. So if you don't pass one time, you get a second chance and you can take this other class that helps you prepare for quals. One professor said, I will change my vote to pass on the condition that if Josh accepts it, he has to take that class anyway. So he doesn't have to retake the quals, but he does have to take that class. So I passed the qual. But 
it's not the sort of thing you can feel particularly good about because I had to explain that to me in order for me to know why I had to take that class. Separately, at this time, I had some professors that really motivated me at Columbia. I had been keeping in touch with them and wanted to return to Columbia. And I had heard, I think it was that summer, after my first year at Penn, that Columbia had space for someone who had passed the quals. So my old advisor from undergrad said, if you take Columbia's quals in the winter, January, so six months away, if you pass it, you can come back to Columbia. There's a space for you. And I thought, I want to do that because I really wanted to return to Columbia. Penn, I just didn't have, with the head of the department telling me to lowering his expectations, I didn't feel good there. And I was going to take this class on how to pass quals. So I'm the only person I've ever heard of who has taken the quals twice and passed both times. No one who passes a qual is ever going to say, I'm going to do that again. But it recharged me to have that opportunity. And so I studied like crazy. So I had to take all my regular classes and I studied really hard to learn how to pass Columbia's qual. Columbia's qual was January in 1995, January 2nd, 3rd, and 5th. I think it was six hours each day. I remember this one better. There's just a pile of blue books at the front. You get a piece of paper each day with something like eight questions on it, and you have to answer something like six questions. And it's just you, a paper, and a pencil, an eraser, and that's it. Calculators don't help with this sort of stuff. This is just very, to most people, it'll appear very theoretical. I can tell you New Year's Eve, I was studying. I could hear people partying all out there when I was in Manhattan staying at a friend's place uh, in the apartment I ended, ended, ended up living at. I remember there were times, so you look down at eight questions and you look through and you say, okay, one, there's definitely, you think which are the easy ones and which are the hard ones before you start answering any. So you do the first one, it's pretty easy. And you get that one done quick. So like 20 minutes, 30 minutes gone. Then you go to the next one. It's a little bit harder, but you can do it. Then you go to the next one. It's pretty hard. This is like one of the harder problems you've ever solved. Or I felt like this was one of the hardest problems I'd ever solved. So now I'm done three or maybe, maybe I've done three and I got to do three more. And I still have maybe four hours. And now I look down at the paper and I'm looking at the questions. And some of these, I can't even understand what they're about. And I don't, I, I remember looking up and thinking, I can't solve any of these things. I feel like I did okay so far. I look around the room at the other students and I figure a bunch of these students must be seeing the same thing that I am, which is that these problems are just not solvable. But I'm looking around and no one is looking up. They're all writing away. And I'm thinking, what do I do? I got four hours. I'm not just going to sit here for four hours. So I look back down and I think, all right, which one do I at least know the most about? I'll get some partial credit to the extent I can. But I'm also thinking this is the end of my career. I guess I can go back to Penn, but I'm not going to get into Columbia. I'm not going to pass this qual. So I look down and maybe one of them I'm thinking, okay, I can tell that this is statistical mechanics or this is quantum or whatever. I can tell something about it. So it's got to have this equation. Maybe I'll write down the Schrodinger equation. And then I keep reading and reading and I'm thinking, well, maybe there's an assumption here that I can make. I can simplify the equation a certain bit. I keep eking away little bit by little bit. And next thing I know, I've solved the problem. I've never done that before. I felt like for years that I'd asked other people's people for help for, if I'd worked a little bit harder or given myself a little bit more challenge. But see, I always felt like I was catching up. I didn't have time. I was taking so many classes. I didn't get to really delve into these things. Anyway, so then I have two problems left. So I look down and I'm thinking, all right, two problems, four to choose from. I guess I'll do the same thing. And so I write down an equation for one, look for some simplifications, look for some something, an assumption that I can make. And next thing you know, I solve the next one. 
And that one took me like an hour, maybe two, really long. And next thing you know, I do the same thing with the next one and I finished solving them. And I'd never done this before. And I can't tell you, most people know how hard physics problems are in high school level or college level. But at this level, it's like, I mean, it's really mind-bending stuff. And I regret to say that, you know, like any skill, if you don't practice it, you lose it. And I have not been practicing these things. But for three days, this happened. I ended up passing the quals. All they tell you is whether you pass or fail. They don't tell you your score. They don't tell you which ones you got right, which ones you got wrong. So all I knew I passed, I didn't know if I barely passed. I don't know how many of those things I got right or right or wrong until a couple of years later. I was working with uh, Michael Shavitz, my uh, advisor, when I was working at Fermilab. He just in passing said, your scores on the qual were all the way up there with the theory students. Or maybe he said your scores were all the way up there with the Chinese students or the foreign students. I'm pretty sure he said up there with the theory students. And what that means is that the theory students are the ones who really get the problems best. They are, to, and to, to theory, you have to have a really high score. And this meant that I had made it. On a measure of, on an, the qualifying exam, one of the top schools in the world, against people who had studied really highly and so forth, my scores were up there with the top ones. And this is what I had been dreaming of ever since I first decided to major in physics was to do really well and really get this stuff. And I can't tell you that that feeling was, I, that meant that whatever happened, I had succeeded. I had gone from remedial when I started taking those classes undergrad with a freshman who knew more than I did to the top of the game at that level. I think a lot of people have a certain feeling of insecurity around their intelligence. And people have told me that I'm smart my whole life, but I've never felt particularly smart. I've, I, there's no one that I've met that I didn't feel I could learn from. And so I feel like I'm right in there with everybody else. I certainly think I, I put in a lot of time and work into that. So that really relieved me of feelings of like, am I worthy? Can I do this? It was years and years of work paid off. Some shames. So those are two great triumphs, making the best team I'd ever made and succeeding at the hardest intellectual academic challenge I ever had. And school and sports were, have long been and remain two of my greatest things in life. All right, here's one of my greatest shames. After my parents divorced, we, uh, my mom's side, you know, me and my two sisters, we went back and forth between houses. There was joint custody. And the parents were always supportive of, of, of the kids. And they never, you know, they had their disagreements, but they always supported us. At my mom's house at one point, we lived in a very high crime area. Actually, this is after that very high crime area, but it was still borderline. When we lived on Walnut Lane in Philadelphia, I would go to the library on Chelton Avenue. I would ride my bike there and I had this BMX bike. I remember it was a Huffy. I think I saved up to my allowance or something to, to buy it. I was really happy to have it. One time I'm riding my bike back probably half a mile from Chelton Avenue to Walnut Lane on Green Street. And I noticed there were some kids riding behind me. It felt sort of like I was being chased. I don't know why I had that feeling, but I remember feeling like, I wonder if they're chasing after me. So I rode for a little bit off the sidewalk into the street and they rode on the street too. And then I rode back on the sidewalk and they rode on the sidewalk too. And I was like, oh, something's up here. I'm not that far from home. But one of them rode in front of me and cut me off, stopped his bike right in front of mine. Another one stopped his bike right next to me. And then a whole bunch of them stopped behind me. So I was surrounded. And the street was right there. This is broad daylight. The one guy next to me 
is getting right in my face. And I, I don't know what he's talking to me about, but he's threatening me. I'm not sure what's going on because I'm my intention is completely on the guy who's right up in my face. I should mention probably 10 years old at this time. I don't think I was in high school yet. I'm kind of looking out at the cars. Like, don't the cars realize that this one boy is surrounded by people and by these other boys? And it doesn't look like, like, I felt like so helpless. I don't know how this is going to come out, but I'm like the one white boy here and they're all black. And so it's got to be clear that something's up, that I'm not with the rest of them and they're surrounding me. And then at one point I try to get away. I don't know what the kid said, but I try to move. And as I move, my bike won't move. And I look back and one of the other kids is with a wrench taking off the rear wheel of my bike. And I didn't even realize this because my attention was on the kid next to me. And as I move and that happens, they get angry because I thought that, I don't know what, I mean, the guy next to me puts a wrench in my face, like a big wrench. He's like, don't move because we're stealing your wheel. That's it. And I'm thinking like, how do I do something about this? Do I leave the bike and run out in the street and stop a car? I'm so stunned. I don't know what to do. And I'm feeling so helpless. Finally, they take off the wheel and they're like, great, see you later. And they all start getting ready to ride away. And it occurs to me that I now have to bring my bike back to my house without a rear wheel and explain to them how I was mugged in broad daylight and did nothing to protect myself and just sat there and took it. Now, to this day, it was only recently that I first shared this story on my blog. And I remember hearing when people talk about being attacked, being raped, being things like that, that they felt like, helpless and they felt shame. And I always felt like, why would you feel shame about something that you could do nothing about? And it didn't occur to me that I had this big shameful experience in my life. Because what I did, I rather than face the shame of explaining what happened, I thought, I'm just going to say that the bike was stolen when I was in the library. And so I just threw the bike down, got off of it and walked away and said, take the bike. And I went home and I told them that my bike, I told my parents, my mom and stepfather, that my bike had been stolen from the library. And they were concerned naturally. And they said, how do you know that it was stolen? And I said, I didn't really think this through because what, I'm 10 years old. And all I'm thinking is like how full of shame and adrenaline I was. And I said, well, they cut through the lock and they, or the chain because there's locks, uh, there's a, a little bike um, locking things outside the, the library. And I said, because they, the, my stepfather said, how do you know that they sawed through the chain? And I said, because the chain was on the ground when I got out of the library. And he said, well, wh- where's the chain? And I, I, don't, I, I guess I must have said I left it there. I don't know what they thought of my story because it didn't really make sense what I said to them, but I didn't have the bike. Maybe they thought I sold the bike. I don't know what they thought, but I, from 10 years old until maybe 45 years old, when I first wrote about that in my blog, I never shared that story. I wonder if I should share another story. Yeah, another shameful story was when I was with another friend. It was some friend of the family. And there's two of us, another guy, and we were riding along Wissick and Creek. I was at my dad's house. I had a bike. I don't remember who the other person was, but he borrowed a bike either from my sister or someone else. And we rode down by Wissick and Creek near where my dad lives. And we're riding along the creek and there's a path. It's not particularly, it's a thin path. So we're we're riding next to each other and that's about as wide as it gets. And ahead of us are two boys who are older than us, clearly bigger than us. 
and also black. And we were both white. And as we approach, we expect that they're going to get out of the way because we go single file, I think. And they, they don't go single file. They block the path. And as we get there, we stop. And then they put their hands on the handlebars and say, get off the bikes. Again, I didn't know what to do. Now, at this point, I was probably 15 years old. I feel like I was in high school at the time. I'm not sure I remember. I don't know what to do. And I feel because they're bigger than me. And if I fight, I'm going to lose. And so I don't fight. I get off the bike. He gets off the other bike. These guys take the bikes and ride away. And now I'm stuck again with no bike. Me and the other guy, I forget who it was, we walk back and we say the bikes were stolen. And I made up something because I felt so ashamed that I said that when he, when they blocked the path, I said that one of them took a knife out and threatened us with a knife. Now he didn't, there was no knife, but I felt so bad about another time losing a bike. I don't know if this, if you've ever had something stolen from you, but what happens is they send a, you call up the police to make a report and then the police drive a car. And in this case, it was not an unmarked car. It was a police car and it parks in front of the house. And I think it even had the, the, lights on i don't think i had the siren on and so like the whole neighbors get to see a police car and a police officers come out and you're sitting there on the porch of the house and they're asking you all these questions and I, again i felt so ashamed and you know people were saying well no use getting cut up over a bike which i guess made me feel better but in the long run it made me feel so ashamed all right i was kind of famous in my family and they laughed at me for this that i was responsible for five bikes being stolen three of them were mine Two of them were with someone that I was with. So that was, so now you've heard about three of them. So there was another time with a different friend and we rode our bikes down East River Drive, what's now called Kelly Drive, I think, in Philadelphia to the art museum. It was a really hot day and the art museum, this is the art museum from the Rocky Steps, the art museum steps in Rocky. And on the sides of the steps, there were fountains. I guess kids could play in the fountains. So we went there and we put our bikes on the side and we jumped in the fountain and we were, you know, swimming in the fountains and a bunch of other kids came up at one point i think when we were ready to go and they came up and like can we ride your bikes can we ride your bikes and we were like no and they kept they just kept adding kept adding come on please let's ride please let us ride let us ride please let us let us let us ride we just want to try them out and we'll bring them back when we're done and they kept going and going and going once again we were the white ones they were the black ones and they were just going at us it was boys and girls this time and finally we're like all right whatever whatever okay fine you can try the bikes out so a couple of the kids got on the bikes and they all disappeared in seconds and all the bi- and the bikes were gone. I mean, they just all rode away. And from one second, we were surrounded by like 15 kids. And the next second, it's completely empty. There's no one around. It's like, we're just standing there. I think this was actually before the one with the Hissican Creek example. So I'm probably like 10 or 15 years old, something in there. And again, we're without bikes. And I felt so ashamed. Like we didn't, ha- I mean, in this case, we were, we were lied to and deceived, but there was no resistance. You know, my family always made fun of me as having been a victim. They didn't make fun of me for being a victim. They made fun of me like I just kept, all these bikes kept disappearing. This was really, this is hard to talk about. I guess to some extent I can feel like it was such a lifetime ago. I talk to people these days and I ask them, how many times have you, have you been mugged? Because I was mugged five times. And I just assumed being mugged, I just felt like being mugged was a part of growing up, that everyone got mugged a couple times, at least. It occurs to me that a lot of people, now I'm, I've been asking people, and it didn't, I didn't realize that most people have never, ever been mugged. Most people have never had a wrench 
in their face. No one's been threatened. Not many people have been threatened like that. There was another time when I was walking actually from my mom's house to my dad's house, which is about a half mile walk. At this time, I had saved up and I bought myself a, it was when, when what do you call them? The Casio watches the, with the calculator on them. It was new at the time. This is late 70s, early 80s. And I had one. I guess I didn't yet know like to hide my, nerd, my nerdiness. I think that's, I was walking along and I'd crossed Green Street on Walnut Lane. These two boys, also black, I was white. And one of them got behind me and one of them got next to me. And they started saying that they wanted my watch. And I'm just walking along and I'm, I don't want to give them my watch. There's a church on that corner, it was at the time. There's a wall there. And as we're walking by the wall, we're just walking by the wall. And at a certain point, the wall ends. And then the next thing, there's a grass, uh, a grassy hill or a lawn that kind of slopes up a little bit. They say, give me the, they keep saying, give me the watch. And I keep not giving them the watch. And one of them's holding a rock, a rock probably the size of, bigger than a grapefruit, maybe the size of a cantaloupe, as I remember, black, the rock. So now there's grass to my right, open space in front of me, a kid with a rock to my left and a kid behind me. I say, I'm not going to give you the watch. And then the one with the rock shoves me. So I fall on the grass. At that moment, you hear the screech on the street to my left. As it turns out, there were plainclothes cops who were just driving by at that moment in an unmarked car and they screeched to a halt and they jump out and the kid behind me, I think, falls to the ground and starts crying. The kid with the rock starts hightailing it, running as fast as he can straight forward. So the car is not parked in the street. One guy, uh, one cop, I think, has got the guy behind me and the other one chases the kid down who ran straight forward, catches that kid. That was, I guess, the end of that. What happened was because the cops saw what happened. It was a criminal case against these other two kids. And I was a witness now. So there's no like pressing charges or anything, but I was brought in as a witness. And once or twice, my mom brought me into court to testify what happened. But as far as I know, the kids never showed up. So I never testified, but that was another case. I don't feel so ashamed of that, but I certainly felt it was another time when, you know, I don't know, deadly weapon. I don't know what it feels. I don't remember it doesn't feel good to have a rock shoved in your face that could hit you on the head, that could break your head open. Another time, I went to Central High School in Philadelphia. Central High School is like the, in New York, I say it's like the Stuyvesant or the Brock Science of Philadelphia. We had one magnet school. It was a public high school. It was in North Philly, not a particularly great neighborhood. Uh, school let out at 2.30 and I had to take a bus to a bus to go to my mom's house. And I think it was a bus to a bus to a bus to go to my dad's house. Senior year, actually, I ride my bike home, but this was before that. So one time I'm with, if I remember right, it was two friends. I think it was Tuan and Adam. It's the middle of the afternoon, broad daylight. We're waiting for the bus. It's crowded stop. I feel someone, someone's fingers in my pocket. And as I look around, I see that there's a, a few kids going through and it looks like they're trying to pick people's, people's pockets. Now at Central High School at that time, it was cool to be black and not cool to be white. That's what it was. That's my, that was the impression I had. And so white kids would try to act black. I didn't know what to say or do. And I, I kind of said out loudly in a kind of not white voice. I just goes, Hey, why are you trying to pick my pocket? But not to anyone in particular, because there was a whole bunch of kids. There's maybe five. if I, I don't really remember exactly. And suddenly one of them is like right in my face, like nose to nose. I didn't expect this. And I didn't really know what to do because I wasn't expecting violence. And suddenly this guy's right in my face. 
I'm like, I don't know what to say or do. I'm sweating. I'm like, I'm confused. And suddenly, I don't want to make this sound like there was a gun. There wasn't a gun. But blammo, I, what happens is I get socked in the jaw from below. It was a sort of, like if I had been saying a TH with my tongue between my teeth, I would have lost my tongue. And it was, I don't, I didn't black out, but it was like a bam. I don't think I've ever felt such a big bam in my head before. My friends later said that while this one kid was in my face, a, a shorter kid went in between us and punched like straight up. And after they punched me, they all like scattered again. I was just totally helpless. I didn't know what to say or do. I was like, what do I, I just got socked in the jaw. Maybe could have, maybe I got, uh, what do you call it? When um, a concussion, I don't know. But I was out, not out like unconscious, but just, what happens when you get punched in the in the jaw? It's not shame, but it's helpless. So that was another thing growing up. Here's another one. This is something I don't remember, which was that when we lived, before we lived on Walnut Lane, we lived in Rockland Street. Rockland Street, to this day, I looked it up, is one of the most, one of the higher crime streets in all of Philadelphia. The, my mom tells me that the girls used to touch my skin because there were only a couple of white families on the block and they, they, I guess they weren't used to seeing white skin around. And I, maybe it was my hair also because at the time I was a towhead, you know, super blonde. Uh, my hair was just blonde. But the big thing, I think, if I remember right, this is one of the things, I don't remember this happening, but everyone in my family tells me that this happened. And I think it was one of the things that precipitated, like whatever the situation, we got to get out of this place, which was that some of the boys, apparently it would pick fun of me, pick fun on me, all the time. I don't really remember it, but they once put a lit firecracker in my pocket and it went off. Front pocket, back pocket, I don't know. I don't know how loud of a firecracker it was because I don't really remember it, but apparently they saw fit to light a firecracker and stick it in my pocket. I don't know what they were going to get out of that. I guess it's been repressed because it definitely happened. One last shameful thing. That one wasn't so shameful. I don't know how that formed me. How many times I've been mugged now? It's a lot. Or I don't know what you call it when someone sticks firecrackers, firecrackers in your pocket. And then the last thing was when I was a kid growing up, I was chubby. Now, by today's standards, with a country that's roughly 80% overweight or obese and something like 40% obese, I don't think I would register as overweight today. But what I do remember is my older stepbrother, who was not chubby, he would pick at my fat. Like he would grab at my nipple and go titty twister and like twist it. And it made me, that definitely made me feel ashamed. And I didn't, it's funny because to this day, fitness is very important to me. And I think about that regularly. I would not say all the time, but I love the feeling of my body being fit. I like feeling taut muscle under thin, lithe skin. It feels so much better than uh, sugar tastes and it lasts so much longer in some ways I credit my older stepbrother for instilling in me a sense of shame about something that I didn't really like everyone's free to be who they want and to consider beauty wherever they want it to, to find beauty wherever they want but for me that was something that helped set me on a path you know it was years later that I actually started competing like I ran cross country in high school, but it was JV and I didn't really, I never placed. But then when I played ultimate in college, I started getting very competitive and really loving it. 
to some extent, it was my being chubby as a kid and being held to it that helped make that happen. So these were a couple triumphs, making that team an ultimate, passing the quals with flying colors after barely hanging on and feeling like a failure, having the bike stolen on Green Street, having the bike stolen Wissick and Creek, having the bike stolen at the art museum, being shoved with a rock in my face, being sucker punched, having the firecracker stuck in my pocket, being teased for being fat. I have no idea if people are going to like this or not. Partly this comes up, and I think this will be a future episode, is that people keep coming over here. And when I talk about not flying, they keep calling me privileged. And when I talk about not avoiding packaged food, they keep telling me that I don't know what it's like to live in a food desert. And I can't understand. I guess it's maybe that I don't share things like this. That, you know, there's another time when I lost my job in my apartment in the same day. Not as bad as it sounds, but what is it that makes people... I don't, I don't feel like, I haven't even talked about the time I got mugged actually at knife point. My mom got mugged at knife point too. I don't know what it is that, what it is about me that people think that I don't, I don't know what they think that I don't get. In any case, if you've listened all the way through this, I'm curious to what you think about it. I've never shared all the stuff together at once. It took me a while to compile it. It's actually the notes for this have been sitting on my computer for I don't know how long because I didn't know where I was going with this. I feel like this is not important. This is, you know, what's important, what leadership in the environment is about is about, about finding joy and community and connection and loving life more without the flying, without the food packaging, without creating so much garbage. That's where I feel we can go with this. But it seems like every time I share about myself, people seem to like that more. And maybe that's part of being... A leader is sharing things about yourself that you don't think are important or that you put behind you. I don't know. I don't know where this is going to go. So that's why I'm kind of curious what people think about it. I'm looking at the recording tool here. I'm 36 minutes into it, 37 minutes into it. I don't know where this is going to go. As you can tell, I'm kind of confused acting on this feedback that I keep getting from people. All right, I'll stop now.